Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. My guest on today's show is the fashion journalist and writer Dana Thomas. Born and raised in the USA, Dana cut her teeth working at the Washington Post under the legendary editor Ben Bradley and spent 15 years as a cultural and fashion correspondent for Newsweek in Paris, where she continues to be based today, writing for the New York Times, the Financial Times and Vogue. She has written several books, including the best-selling Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster, and more recently, Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes, which reports on the effects of fashion on the environment and the pioneers making big changes in the industry today. Dana stopped by Five Carlos Place, the matches fashion destination in London, to talk about some of her favourite memories from the front line of fashion, as well as to share the things she'd put into the cabinet upstairs here. Dana Thomas. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Five Carlos Place. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Beautiful sunny day at last. After. Glorious. You've just come in from Paris? I have, where it was not so sunny. <laughs> so congratulations on your latest book, which was published last year. Yes, I believe. thank you. It's called Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. First of all, can you explain a bit about what this Fashionopolis is? Yes, Fashionopolis for me is about how where we live today, that everything somehow is touched by fashion. Think about when you get up in the morning, what's the first thing you do after you brush your teeth? You get dressed. What are you putting on? We have no idea. And then we probably know somebody in the fashion business. One out of six people somehow are connected to fashion, whether they're models, they're photographers, they're seamstresses, they're growing cotton for, for the fabric, they're dyers. You know, somehow you know someone in fashion. So it's around us in every way. And I went back and, as one does, I was reading some Aristotle. <laughs> and, and it took me then, of course, to Plato. And I was reading about pl reading Plato and about the idea of the polis, so a just society. And I thought, right, right now, fashion is not a just society. You have workers in far-flung locations in buildings that are shoddily built and collapse on them, paid less than a living wage, which is what we say you need for to house, clothe, and feed your family. And we burn through these clothes at a ridiculously fast rate today. You know, seven, seven wears before we toss them, it's said in some studies. And in China, I've heard it's three times. And the clothes are, are below price, what we should be paying. And so we buy massive amounts of them. We burn through them. The people who make them are paid poorly. The people who sell them are some of the richest people in the world. When I was working on the book, the, uh, Seamstresses in Bangladesh were being paid $68 a month, and the second richest person in the world was the owner of Zara, and he was worth $68 billion. So it kind of puts things in perspective for me that shows that this is not a just society. And, and, and then I started thinking about Fritz Lang, 
as one does. <laughs> and I uh, and I rewatched the movie Metropolis, which is the most remarkable you know, masterpiece of cinema. And if you haven't seen it, dial it up on iTunes and watch it because it is so beautiful as well as so powerful. And uh, and that is basically what he said. Here were these people working underground to make money and for the wealthy people who lived in these crystal glowing, you know, towers. And this was before the Empire State Building was built. So, you know, before we had skyscrapers in Manhattan, he was imagining this in Metropolis and saying, you know, this is an unjust society. And so I was thinking about this and how we live in this fashion world, even if we don't realize we do, and how unjust it is about income inequality and wealth disparity and and the impact of globalization, that we're shipping things all over the place and putting this huge carbon footprint on it and burning through things and filling up our landfills and killing the planet. And all this just felt so unjust. So that's where I came up with the name Fashionopolis. Can you tell me the story that led to you writing this book? I started thinking about it 12 years ago. I was on book tour for my first book, Deluxe. And in one day, I met three different people who told me they were in the fashion industry who were bringing manufacturing back to the United States. Now, when you're a journalist, three makes a story. So I said, hmm, this is interesting, and put it down, you know, marked it down and, put, and opened a file on my desk. And when I read about reshoring of businesses, I clipped the piece and threw it in the file and sort of just kept noodling. And I was not ready to write a new book yet, but I, thought there's something here. And then I read the book The Omnivore's Dilemma, which I just love, and how he did this global view of the food industry and how in the industrialization of the industry had really you know, skewed our view of what we eat and what we think is just in, in that world. And um, and I started noodling that. And it all just kind of kept slowly percolating. And I started working on the book proposal, oh, I guess, nine years ago. Could that be? Yes, nine years ago. And, uh, and it just wasn't quite working. And then John Galliano flamed out at Dior. And I wrote a piece for the Washington Post about John's flame out and how this was a year after Alexander McQueen's death and that Mark Jacobs had had troubles and that Tom Ford had said he had suffered from depression and, I, and the young designer at Balmain had, had to leave his job for uh, men, mental health issues and I just thought there's something here to this so I quickly wrote a proposal about sort of the impact of stress and the demands of globalization on the creative side of the fashion industry and that became my second book Gods and Kings and my publisher jumped right on it and said yes do it and this got put to the side because it was too early. But everything that I thought about and I had jotted down is in this book. Visiting Alabama and seeing Natalie Channon and her, her, her equivalent in fashion to farm to table. Levi's, the impact of Levi's, the, the original sustainable garment that's been bastardized jeans and also the most worn garment. I mean, one of the figures that so stupefied me when I was doing my research is that any given moment of the day, half the planet is wearing jeans. And you go, no, get out. Well, here we are, we're three people in this room, and how many people are wearing jeans? One. 
okay, but if, you know, we went downstairs, there'd be somebody in jeans. If you're standing on the street corner, you look around, you're like, oh yeah, half the people are wearing jeans. You're in church, you look around, you're like, yeah, half the people are in jeans. <laughs> you know, it's suddenly, it's, and yet I wanted to know about the impact. So that, all those original ideas were in there. And then as I researched it, it grew more and more. I learned about SoBots. I'd been thinking, I want to know about SoBots and put them in here, so I did. And, and of course, I knew I wanted to have Stella in there, but in that time, that nine years or so, Stella McCartney. Stella McCartney's yeah. group, you know, business had grown and her movement had grown. I always thought it was very courageous that she went no leather, no fur in a business that was all about leather and fur, especially being part of the Caring Group, which is, was at the time Gucci Group, thus its mission, leather. Um, and I wanted to highlight these sort of heroes and also show the problems of Bangladesh and the sweatshops. And I did all that, but it was there in the beginning and it just took a while to, to come together. And, and it did at the right time. There's a few other things I want to ask you about from that book. But first of all, you have written down some things that you would put into the cabinet here at Five Carlos Place. Yes. So what is the first thing? Jotted on a little scrap of paper last night at Covati's in, in Soho. Um, the first would be a coat from Azadine Alaya that was given to me by Azadine when I was 18 or 19 years old. And it's a beautiful black kimono coat from 1983. So I was 19. And I got it as a gift because, or as payment for doing a fashion show of his. I first went to Paris in 1982 as a model, something a lot of people don't know. And, um, and I had worked as a model in Philadelphia where I grew up as a teenager and then in New York with Elite. And Elite sent me to Paris. And I had done that day the fashion show for Agnes Bay, which was a really hot label back then. It's still fantastic. We love Agnes Bay. And so I had my hair and makeup done and I walked in the agency and the agency, my agent said, what are you doing right now? Can you go to do another show? Because you're all set to do it. And I said, sure, why? What's going on? And he said, Iman missed her plane. And I said, me, Iman, like, no, yeah, what are you talking about? I'm the girl who does Elle magazine and Grazia magazine and Freunden and, and Agnes Bay. I am not, I am a long way from Iman level fashion. So they said, it's fine, your hair's done, your makeup's done, the show's in half an hour, get in a cab, go. So I went down to this little place, and, and I'd never heard of Azadine Alayo, uh, on Rue Park Royale, and the show was with all the superstar models, which, and he never paid any of them. He paid them in clothes. So there was Joan Severance, there was Debbie and Janice Dickinson, there was Carol Alt, there was me. <laughs> Hilarious, right? And Janice was so sweet. She took me under her wing and sort of said, you've never done this before, have you, kid? I'm like, no. Because <laughs> the thing I'd done for Agnes Bay was like a little showroom thing. This was like the real runway. And then out front was among the people there was my agent, John Casablancas. So it was a big thing with photographers and so on. And, uh, but I did it. And um, about two months later, I went back down to the showroom and they said, you need to get paid, go down to Avalaya and he'll give you something. Normally they give you a dress, a skirt, a top. That was when those clothes were really tight and short and looked fantastic. Look up, Google uh, Joan Severance Alaya and you'll see. I mean, this was before Naomi was wearing it, really sexy stuff. And 
I walked in, it was snowing that day, it was in December. And Azadine's partner, Christoph, said, so what would you like? And I didn't even, there were racks of clothes. He said, you can pick out anything you want. I said, I didn't even look. I didn't even look at what was on the racks. I just stood there and I said, you know, it's snowing out and it's really cold and I don't have a winter coat. Simply necessity. I don't have a winter coat and I'm cold. And he said, mm, that's a big ask. <laughs> <laughs> so I... Let me go ask Azadine and I'll come, I'll be right back. And I didn't know anything about the clothes besides what I'd worn in the, in the fashion show. So I was like, oh, okay. And he comes back and he says, Azadine says it's okay since you dropped everything at the last minute and came and filled in. That was a big ask on our part. So you can have the coat. Would you like it in black or burgundy? I didn't know what it would look like. I knew nothing. And I said, I guess black because black goes with everything, right? And he goes, yes. I was being so pragmatic about this as opposed to being like super fashion girl. So I guess I'll just have a black coat. Good. We're good. And he pulls it out and it's so handsome. It has one button up on the collar. It has a high Mao-like but wraps around collar, rounded shoulders, kimono sleeves, goes down mid-calf with a belt. And I still wear it. And every time I do, people go, what is that coat? And I still wear it, and it's beautiful. And I, and I will keep it forever. The label fell out at one point, and I got out a needle and thread and sewed it back in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which takes me back. I wanted to ask you a couple of things before we move on away from your Fashionopolis book. Um, having read it um, and enjoyed it a lot, um, it's so easy to read, really pacey. But the first half of the book deals with the kind of quite depressing Mm. The, the devastation that the fashion, fast fashion industry is wreaking on our environment. Um, and, and in turn, the whole fashion industry, because the fashion industry as a whole has adopted the fast fashion model to try to keep up. Right. And because they see it makes them so much money. Um, but the second half of the book, it changes and suddenly there, it feels like there's hope. That's what we called it, the book of hope. My agent kept telling me <laughs> really? when I, she would write to me or she would call me and say, Okay, this is all reading well, but remember, this is the book of hope. <laughs> and I just found that really wonderful because I think as a consumer, you're constantly being bombarded with bad information news. and telling you you're bad and you're doing bad things and everything you're wearing and everything you're doing is ruining the planet and the environment. And there was a few things I really thought would be, I wanted to talk to you about because, you know, I found them really interesting. And even though I know, I knew about some of it, I didn't know a, a lot of it. And so things like this idea of circularity, I was just wondering if you could explain a bit about what that means in terms of fashion. Well, here's a perfect example. Circularity would be that I got this fantastic organic cotton t-shirt from Natalie Chan at Alabama Channon in Florence, Alabama. They grew the cotton, they wove the cotton, they made these t-shirts. It's thick, it's soft, it's wonderful. It's not cheap compared to fast fashion. I think she sells them for 50 or $60 a piece, but if you add in what everyone's paid and you pay everyone along the supply chain the right amount, that's what a t-shirt should be costing today. We have been conditioned to underpay because everyone along the supply chain has been nickeled and dimed. And we're underpaying so much and yet these people are, that the owners of the company are still making humongous profits so that really shows how little everyone's paid. So I was fine, you know, paying, forking this out for this t-shirt that'll last forever and it's really solid and it's really comfortable. But the day it dies, because it's organic, I can put it in the compost. 
and then I can feed my roses with it. That's circularity. That it has an afterlife, that it keeps going and going. Another example of circularity is one I write about in the book, a company called Worn Again, which is taking cot cotton poly blends. You know, when you have a shirt that says it's 40% cotton and 60% polyester. Well, that's pretty much the hardest thing to deal with in recycling because it, it's hard to separate the two. And so those clothes normally go into the landfill directly. And the polyester fibers don't break down. They don't. I mean, it's essentially plastic. Plastic's going to be around forever. A thousand years, they say, before it starts actually starting to break down. And I think that's a conservative guess. So what do you do? Well, they came, went to Cambridge, the Warn Again people, and found a scientist who could divorce cotton from polyester and then came up with a system where they can re regenerate the polyester to a virginal state and use it over and over and over again. Now, and then do the same thing with the cotton, take it back down to a pulp and then and, or, and, and regenerate it as cotton. And uh, I think that that's exactly the circulation idea, that we don't have to make po new polyester. We don't need to pump any more oil out of the ground and make more polyester. We, could, we have plenty on the planet that we can just keep regenerating and regenerating and reusing and reusing forever and ever. And I think she said it's limitless the number of times they can regenerate it. If not, it's a long time. And then they come up with another thing, like maybe we'll turn it into insulation or bricks for houses or something. And that's a, that's, you know, a continuation. Like then we take this raw material and we use it into something else that lasts even longer, that we don't just throw it in the bin and it winds up in a landfill. There's the idea of a linear consumption model, which we've had for a long time now, where you make something, you buy something, you use it, and you throw it away. And what we want to do is you make something, you buy something, you use something, you remake it, you buy it, you reuse it, you remake it, <laughs> that, and it's in a circle. Mm. I also want to talk to you about this idea of 3D printing, um, which you talk a lot about in the book, and this idea of receiving a piece of clothing as a link. It's a crazy idea, right? If I explain this to people I know, they just can't understand how you could possibly receive an item of clothing in this way. Can you explain how it would well, work? Well, can you imagine if somebody had told you in you know, 30 years ago that we'd be walking around with phones in our pockets and that you could look up everything on it and book plane tickets on it and tip theater tickets and order dinner, they'd be like, what are you talking about? I mean, I remember the first cell phones and we carried them around in a suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pretty, it was a pretty ridiculous thing. So um, the idea is that 3D printing, you know, is, they, is based on you build up a program and then it tells the machine and, it's, and it prints it through layering building, it builds things. Knitwear is essentially 3D printing. Um, and so once you be, you're able to program that, that item as a link, then you don't have to make it anymore. And what I've been hearing from people who are futurists and you know, experts in the field is that at some point, Amazon will not be selling us stuff that they send in cartons that goes in a UPS truck that's delivered around town and causing traffic and has a big carbon footprint and we have all this waste and all the bubble wrap, done. That what they're gonna do is sell you the link and you download the link and you'll have your 3D printer at home in your kitchen, in your garage, in your guest room and you'll just print whatever the item is straight out at home. Now, that may be some time off 
But people are working on that, and they're aiming toward making it happen. We're already 3D printing shoes. The hard soles. So at the moment, everything they print seems to be hard. And they Not have... always. No. Some of the Nike shoes now are completely 3D printed with some knitting and some moussey stuff. And, um, but they're still doing them in factories. But eventually, they're going to take that technology to the, the point that we can do it at home. And the point with this is that it removes, it's, it's made to order. Made to order. made to order. And there's a great company here in London who I spotlight in the book called um, Unmade. And that's what they do. They, they've taken out the middleman. And that's one of the things it's going to do is take out the middleman in many different areas. And you order a sweater and you tell them what color you want and the shape of the v, you know, v-neck or around it. And they send that order directly to the factory and it's made. And since knitwear is kind of 3D printing in a sense um, because it builds in the three dimension. Um, and they, they don't have to do a run of 100 sweaters anymore. They just do one at a time. So, you know, you, you want to sell 80 sweaters, but you make 100 of them because it's cheaper to make 100 of them than it is to make 80, and then you throw 20 away, and that's a race, wasteful model. And this is a zero waste because you're selling things that don't need to be made ahead of time, direct to consumer, but also through th this, this technology of sending links. So they can make a purple v-neck, and then they can make a green turtleneck, and then they can make a yellow crew neck, and then they send it directly to the consumer. And that's what we need to aim for in all of the fashion industry, and some of the brands I spotlight are coming up with the solutions for that, and that is zero waste. If we're going to make those, those goals that the UN has set you know, for 2050, which sounds like a long way off, but isn't, and we should do it sooner, we just all have to think zero waste all the time and not make 100 to sell 80. Now, going back to your cabinet, what's the next thing that's in, that you're putting in there? My pony, Blackie, who I had when I was 8 to 15. He was very cute. Oh, he was black. And he was... Um, he was just so solid and sweet. And he wasn't a Shetland, but he was a little bit bigger than Shetland. And he, I don't think he, and he wasn't Welsh. He was kind of a, the mutt of ponies. Um, but Blackie taught me how to take care of myself and take care of others and look after others and be responsible. My father made me muck the stalls. My father made me clean my, my tack and hang it up and, and get out the neat's foot oil and the saddle soap. I used to have to comb and braid his his mane for the shows and look after that. I had to feed him and, you know, I didn't, and, and, and of course ride him and ride him beautifully. And, and, um, and what I learned riding at such a young age, which still comes into my life every day, is how to think and see in a 360 degree view, to be aware of everything all the time. You know, there's a rock over there, your pony might trip on it. There's a branch coming, you're going to have to duck. There's a log, you're going to have to jump. You better be well in your seat. And, um, and I use that every day, walking down the street. I know it's going around me 360. Um, thinking when I'm writing a book, I look 360. I think about all the different angles and things and everything I'm doing. Mm. And I learned that through my, my pony Blackie. Did, was Blackie at home with you or did you have to go to stables? We boarded him, but we boarded him about a mile away. Curiously, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, and we boarded him at a beautiful old 
former race horse farm that had a track. And it was at the time of Secretariat winning the Triple Crown. So I used to go up on the track on my pony and play Secretariat. And we'd come around the home stretch, and I'd be beating on him. And we'd gallop, 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 gallop as fast as we could, which was really fun. It was a really beautiful time and a great place to grow up. What, what sparked your interest in fashion? How did you end up writing about fashion? Um, that's really interesting. My father took me to be a model in, in Philadelphia as a teenager. And my parents didn't have the money to send me to college, and they saw this was a good way for me to make money and save up for college. That's and so it was. unusual. Often you hear it's, it was always the father who's slightly mm -mm. Took dubious. Me. And, you know, it was. I was, shoot, I was earning more money then than I do today. <laughs> I was paid $75 an hour. It's a lot of money in 1976. And, um, and I would go down into Philadelphia and on the train on the, the main line, the suburban train, the Paoli local, and go work for John Wanamaker and Strawbridge and Clothier and Gimbel's, the big department stores, doing their junior ads for the Sunday paper after school. And I got out of school at 3.30 and I'd hop on the train, which was next to the school, and be in town by 4 o'clock and work for two hours, make 150 bucks, a lot of money, and, uh, and be home for dinner. And then I got picked up by Elite in New York and then scouted and sent to Paris and I spent three years in Paris and Milan and when I did all that and I saved my money I went back to college and because I knew all along I wanted to be a writer and be a journalist and went to Washington DC and landed a job at the Washington Post in the newsroom as a news aide you know super entry level and copy aide sorting mails and hustling up stories and answering phones and taking messages because there wasn't voicemail and um, working alongside and uh, some of the greatest journalists of all time and working under Ben Bradley, the most wonderful fat, uh, news editor of all time. And learning, learning, learning. And, um, and one day, the fashion editor needed a new fashion assistant and she heard that there was a, a news aide up on the national desk who spoke French and Italian and used to live in Paris and used to model and, knew, and she said, I need her. But that, that doesn't come around yeah. in the Washington Post newsroom very often. And I had always thought the two were separate, that my modeling career was a means to an end and that the end was journalism and I wanted to be a White House correspondent. And the first day I worked with Nina, it became clear that they actually fit together. Um, Calvin Klein was in town. He had just gotten out of rehab. Um, and it was for the launch of Nordstrom in Washington, D.C. And there was a big gala dinner and I watched Nina Nina taught me how to do everything. Uh, we got there and it was a big gala evening and she wanted to get the story of Calvin coming out of rehab and being there with Kelly Klein when he was married to Kelly. And she found that she had been seated way over on the other side of the room and they weren't going to let her anywhere near Calvin. The Calvin people were like running interference. And she said, well, that's not going to work for me. And the woman who organized the whole evening, Peggy Cooper Kafritz, who was the head of the Duke Ellington School, and or on the board of it, I think the board of directors, and was it was a fundraiser for the Duke Ellington School for the performing arts. Um, she was seated next to Calvin. And Nina said, I need, a, I need your seat, Peggy. So Peggy switched seats with Nina and said nothing. 
and they sat down for the dinner. And Nina waited till Calvin was seated, till everyone was seated, and then she sat down next to Calvin, and he was trapped next to Nina for the <laughs> whole dinner. And I thought that was the most genius thing I'd ever seen. And and she got the story. And that and it just became it suddenly became clear. I remember writing to my girlfriend Jenny, saying, "I never thought that these two th worlds fit together, but Nina taught me that they did." And Nina was not a writer, a fashion editor who wrote about you know high heel lengths and hemline lengths and colors. I mean, she did those p trend pieces too. But she, sh she saw fashion, because we were in Washington, as something bigger, as politics and business. It's, it was as important a beat at the Washington Post as covering the White House or covering the State Department. It wasn't in the women's section. It was in the style section, which Ben Bradley had invented. And I got that immediately and I said you're right and indeed it is as I've pro proven with my books that it is about politics and business and about bigger and human rights and you know the planet it's a, it's a much bigger thing than than what's the new heel shape mm -hmm. so it all goes back to Nina and she taught me how to do what I do and I'm still doing it what else are we putting in your cabinet My 1964 Mustang convertible, which I bought on my 50th birthday when it was 50 years old too, or a week after. I bought it for my 50th birthday because we were both from 1964. And it was something I'd always wanted. When I was a kid, that was the car. You know, friends had it. The first time I went on a date, I double dated with a friend who had one. Um, I actually went out with a guy. My friends teased me simply because he drove a Mustang, <laughs> and therefore I got to drive the Mustang. Um, my mom's best friend when I was a kid had a convertible Mustang. Usually they were 67s or 68s, but it was just the car. And when I was a kid, we had a a cougar in 1968 when it was new and when I was in my 20s I had a cougar same year same kind and the cougar is the big brother of the Mustang and that was my single girl car I love that car and it, and it gave me such great cred and that I could actually work on the engine and knew and could talk about the engine that was like this gearhead on the side along with couture and news and politics and I had to leave the Mustang behind when I moved to Paris in 1992 because it was just too big and it gobbled up gasoline and, and I was just so heartbroken. So I finally said, I'm going to get my Mustang. I want a Mustang. I've always wanted a Mustang. When I was 16, we looked at Mustangs, but my mother wouldn't let me get one. I was going to get an old one and What's fix it What's the color up. of the Mustang that you choose? So I bought Prairie Bronze. Wow. And there, it was one of the original six colors and it was one, it's the rarest, I think, of that first run. And it's um, a three-speed on, you know, manual transmission. I put a dual-barrel Weber carburetor on it, so it's like a rocket. And um, and I bought it for our place down in the south of France. It kind of matches the house and the town and the colors of the palette of the south of France. And um, and we pull it out every summer and drive around to the beach and load it up, load up the trunk with beach toys, and we jam really loud music like. Lots of Rolling Stones. I try to play music of the era, but not always. And um, 
And I've done a rally in it. I drove from Bordeaux across to Saint-Tropez in it with a girlfriend of mine. I've actually done a couple rallies in it. And I have plans to drive it to Nice and take the ferry across and tour Corsica and to drive along the coast down to Florence and back. And I have this crazy idea if I can get it in really good shape and I got my toolbox all set to drive all the way down, down, down to the south of Spain and take it across to Tangier and wow. drive around what kind Morocco. Of do, you, do you get a lot of attention for driving yeah. this car? Yeah, they call me in Central Pay the Mustang Lady. <laughs> <laughs> and when we go to the Club Cinq on Cinq in it, they always park it. <laughs> you know, next, like there's the Bentleys and the Ferraris and the Porsches, but my car always gets pole position. It's really beautiful. And it is the car of the, the Gendarme de Saint-Tropez, which is the iconic movie of, the, of Saint-Tropez, um, the 1964. It makes me happy. When I get back in, it has this, it, like the Cougar, it has the same steering wheel as the Cougar. It has this, you know, the same dashboard, but a little smaller than the Cougar. So, you know, the dashboard, it's windshield wipers, headlights. And, um, you know, it's like being back in my Cougar in my 20s. And when I get back in it, I feel like I've got my mojo back. I got my American mojo <laughs> in France. And it makes me really happy. <laughs> especially when we crank some Casey and the Sunshine Band. Oh. Do you ever feel like you might move back to the States or do you, are you a um, Parisian now? I used to, and we actually bought a house in Savannah, which is for sale if anyone wants a, the most beautiful house <laughs> who's, in Savannah. Who's we? Is that? My husband and yeah. and, um, and then it just became clear that I'm pretty rooted in Europe. And um, after I lost my parents, the tug back to America became less strong. And uh, and I have spent more time in Europe and in Paris than anywhere else, mm. funny enough. Mm. So I think I think it's where I'm going to be, as long as I can get down to Saint-Tropez and drive my Mustang. <laughs> and what about your book, Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster, which you published in 2007? Yes. I read that book at the time when it came out and I remember thinking it felt I was like oh that's quite ballsy because now but then especially then sort of felt quite unusual for a fashion writer to write a takedown of the luxury fashion brands well that's what um, Nina taught me to do yeah when I worked for Nina she took a she did I helped her on a piece that she did on Christian Lacroix that was a really tough piece on Christian Lacroix at a time when everybody was saying he was this genius and the, the king of poof and, and women's wear was fawning over him. And she's like, no, he, when he started his company, he left Patu on a Friday, broke his contract, started at LVMH on Sunday, took his entire team with him and left Patu in tatters. It never recovered. And it was one of the oldest couture houses in Paris. Patu sued him and they won. So she did that story when nobody else would think about doing it. And I thought, you know, that's what we have to do. And what I say, I learned everything I do at the Washington Post. I worked with great writers. Some of the, you know, I was among Pulitzer Prize-winning critics and feature writers, who made me raise my game to a much higher level. Um, but then we also believed that the press was the fourth estate, that we are the watchdog, like you in, are in the government. And I decided to do that within the fashion industry. 
And I could do it because I worked for the Washington Post and then I worked for Newsweek magazine where they weren't advertising, where they couldn't say, we didn't like that story, we're pulling our advertising. So I had a freedom and a voice, a place to, to, it, to mount this voice. So, I, and then in books you can do the same. But the thing is, you know, when I wrote that book, a lot of people wrote at the time, oh, Dana Thomas is gonna lose her access, no one's gonna ever talk to her again. Well, okay, two brands were really huffy about it. And fine, whatever. And Which brands? I'm not gonna say. One of them I'm not allowed to talk about anymore. Oh, right, wow. I mean, I can, what are they gonna do? But um, they said, you will call our lawyers if you ever talk about us again. I said, well, I'm fine, you know what? I'm never gonna talk about you all again. And you will, you will fade before I do. So, uh, but the other one we made up and it turned out to be fine. And, and I, I will actually say that was Louis Vuitton because it was um, Yves Carcel and he called me screaming. Even my husband heard it across the room. He's like, who is that? I'm like, it's Yves Carcel. Oh my gosh. So he was, he was Yves, Yves Carcel was the president of Louis Vuitton at the time. He's since passed away. And I liked Yves very much. And therefore he had my home number and I had his cell number. I thought he was a, he was a good egg, but he got really incensed that I compared. He said, you compared Louis Vuitton to McDonald's. How could you do that? Are we allowed to swear on this program? Yes. Okay. He said, don't you know, I wish I could do it in his accent, don't you know that uh, McDonald's makes shit that makes people fat? <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, I said, that's not what I said. Okay, that's not what I said. I said, you know, it was as big a brand recognition as McDonald's that you know Louis Vuitton stores are in the same locales as McDonald's. I mean, you're across the street from it on the Champs-Élysées, across the square from it in St. Mark's Place, across the street from it in Hong Kong, across the street from it in the Galleria in Milan. You know, you, you walk out of Louis Vuitton, you look up and there's a McDonald's because it's prime, it's prime real estate that you all want to be seen. And then I said, the logo, is as recognizable as the Golden Arches and that you all brag about billions sold, and you do. Oh, he was furious, but we, we made up. <laughs> we made up, but I didn't lose my access, quite the contrary. I got letters and phone calls and had business breakfasts with CEOs and designers who said, we didn't realize how far off course we'd gotten, and this was a wake-up call for us, thank you. We've bought the I had CEOs buy hundreds of books to give to their employees and, I, and they would have me come in and sign them for VIP uh, clients and customers and people who would come visit them. I had seven different major brands and department stores ask me to come in and speak at their in-house annual gatherings of all the employees. I couldn't do it because at the time I was writing for Newsweek and the New York Times and that was seen as a conflict of interest to be flown in and paid by a corporation to speak. But big, like the big ones, all the big ones called and said, can you come talk in our company and tell us like what's going on and how, what we're, you know, put us on the right track. So I think it was, yeah, it was hard on a couple of things, but it, it kind of needed to be and nobody was doing that anymore. Nina had died of breast cancer. And Amy Spindler did it when she was at the newspaper, but she was now at the magazine. And then she had died of breast cancer. So nobody was really doing that. 
kind of, yo, watchdog fourth estate journalism. And I thought it needs to be done, and it needs to be done in a big way. So I did it in a big way. Mm. And, it's, and it's still selling. Yeah, it was a New York Times bestseller. and It's still selling. It's being taught in universities. And it may be in development for something on the screen. It's fantastic. Yeah, so it's still, it's still going on. It's great. Much bigger than I thought it would be. <laughs> and much bigger than my husband thought it would be. He's like, oh, my, daughter, my, my wife is writing this little book over there. And it came out and it suddenly became this huge thing. He's like, wow. I didn't realize that that's what you were doing. <laughs> what does he do, your husband? Um, he's in he's in finance, but he does sort of consulting work in finance. Now. So far removed from mm, completely. He's a numbers guy. Mm. Um, okay, and I feel like we should go back to your cabinet now. Ah, yes. So, um, well, completely related. Chanel's fields of may roses rose de may when i was working on deluxe people ask me what's your favorite moment in journalism and it's a close tie between covering the white house and interviewing president george herbert walker bush at a state dinner where i learned of an important lesson that is whenever you're talking to somebody important take a tape recorder because when i got back down to the press room all i'd written in my notebook was yes <laughs> no and yes because I kind of had brain freeze when I suddenly said oh my gosh I'm talking to the leader of the free world and I just stopped talk, talk writing so that's the close second but the first would be the morning I spent in the fields of Monsieur Mule in Grasse where they pick the roses for Chanel number no. five and just fields and fields and fields of these lovely pink, pink, soft pink roses. And Mr. Mule, who was sixth or seventh generation farmer, had hands that were like bear claws, bear paws. I mean, just big, meaty, and, and hard. He'd been working out in those fields for a long time. And we walked over to one of the rose bushes. And he said, you have to come at, you know, by 10, 30, 11, it's too late. We do this first thing in the morning when they're still tight because the sun comes up and they open and then it's too late. And he walked over the roses and he flicked it with his finger and it just burst open. I've tried doing that. I've never made it, managed to make it happen. I was amazed by it. And you could feel the soft winds coming off the sea. He said that's why the soil and these flowers are so perfect because you have the mountain air, you have the sea air. And then he took me into the factory and I watched him turn it into rose water and essential oil. And it was really fascinating. But being in those fields, and it gave me a love for roses. I'd always liked roses. I thought roses were nice and pretty. But that it was like an epiphany. So one of my great passions is gardening. I garden, I farm, I have a little potager kitchen garden where I grow organic vegetables at our place in the south. And then I have a bed dedicated to English roses that I order from David Austin. And I plant as many of those as I can, all of crawling up the house, you know. And, um, and I pick them in the mornings, always before 10 in the morning, and put them in my vase on the, on the desk. And I understood Chanel Number no. 5 and all the other perfumes and what makes a good one and a bad one. It was just a great day. So it's about the May rose and that morning on the Côte d'Azur. That would go in my, my box. 
And in terms of another project, your next project, do you have another book in mind? Do these I things do. Need to I do. Care to share? I can't yet because it's 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 not that it's a secret, but I just need to keep it close because it's more personal. It's not going to be a book. It's not going to be a reported book like these books. No end notes. No bibliography. Um, but we've touched on a bit of it this morning. So when you read it or you hear about it, you go, "All oh, right, there it you is." Dropped in a few little hints. Have we spoken about everything you want to put into your cabinet, or is no? There there's a, there's, there's a not? fifth one. Oh, brilliant! We've done four, right? I think we did Elia, Blackie, yeah. the Mustang, the Roses. You sure there's not six? No, no, no. we're we're, we're down to do five. five. We're going to do five, and the fifth one is. It better be a pretty big cabinet. It's we can accommodate several things. We've had cars in before. I want to put the Grand Canyon in it. <laughs> Can we do a postcard? <laughs> I want to put the Grand Canyon. Yeah. How okay. about a handful of dust yeah. from the Grand Canyon? Okay. That's um, nice. That's much more poetic. I went to the Grand Canyon finally four years ago, three years ago. Something I'd always wanted to do. And as a family, we never did. I don't know why. My mother said, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I'm like, well, why are we going to the Grand Canyon? And, um, and I was invited to speak for Gods and Kings at the Phoenix Art Museum. And I took my husband and my daughter with me. And I just said, we cannot go all the way to Phoenix, Arizona from Paris and not go to the Grand Canyon. So we went. We drove up there. We only spent an afternoon. But when I saw it in person, I mean, you know, I've seen it in Thelma and Louise and I've seen it, you know, in a bazillion different things. And I've flown over it, which is extraordinary, on my way to the West Coast. But seeing it, being there in it, was life-changing it just put everything in perspective that dust is so old it's so old and it, all this stuff that I'm working on and trying to write about and get us to you know wear our clothes more and wash them less and make less and pay people more it's all kind of it feels almost not inconsequential but the Grand Canyon puts it all in its place the scale. And if we don't pay attention to what we're doing, we won't be able to have wonders like the Grand Canyon anymore if it's all filled with plastic and polyester and the water is poisoned. I mean, I saw dead rivers from dumping of denim chemicals and when I was working on this book. and. You know, the lot where Rana Plaza went down and it was filled with, you know, still has kids playing it and find skulls and bones. And, you know, if we don't take care of the planet, we won't have a planet. And, the, and we won't have humanity. And that's what the Grand Canyon reminds you about. That this has been here a long, long, long time. And we need to think quickly and clearly on how to keep it going on for a long, 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 long time. And that we're just specks of dust. And that that's the power. The Grand Canyon is the power. That's wonderful. All right. Well, Dana, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you.
That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website, and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.